Eden podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today we'll be hearing from Bruce C.E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book on Genesis 2 and 3 titled, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 and 3. Now enjoy today's episode of the Eden Podcast. The focus of this episode is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 10 to 16. No head covering for women. In the full passage of 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16, Paul focuses parts of the passage on each of these three groups in the church. Verses 3 to 9, on the converted Jews. Verses 11 and 12, on everyone in church. Verses 13 to 15, on the converted non-Jews. Application and Theology, verses 10 through 12. Here's my paraphrase of these verses. Verse 10, application of the principle for Christian women. Therefore, a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Verses 11 and 12, theological basis of the principle of unity. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all come from God. Prior to verse 10, Paul defends the principle that a Christian woman is a member of the body of Christ in every way. Then, in verse 10, he applies this principle in a simple affirmation. He ends verse 10 by adding another principle that argues in favor of the full status of women in ministry, those who are praying and prophesying, or preaching and teaching. In verses 11 and 12, he puts the matter in theological perspective. One, women and men share in reciprocal relationships, and two, God is overall. Running the bases. At the beginning of my senior year in university, from September to Christmas, I did my student teacher service. At Roswell Kent Junior High School, I was known as Mr. Fleming, the ninth grade English teacher. All day long, I taught classrooms full of ninth grade students. Most of the day, I taught advanced English classes, but at the end of each day, I had a group of students for whom English was a chore. They had a background of poor grades in English. They were unhappy about that and they were sure they weren't going to like studying English in my ninth grade class. To make things worse, my classroom was on the sunny side of the building, and this group of students was assigned to a double-period class to give them enough time to soak up the subject matter. To them, this seemed like a double sentence of doom. Most of these kids wanted to be anywhere else but in that English class. I was supposed to teach them grammar. I decided that the only way for all of us to survive was to use our time creatively. I had them do homework during the first period. The second and last period of the day, we played blackboard baseball. Yes, we had blackboards back then. Each row of students from front to back was a team. I drew a baseball diamond on the board and put up six columns off to one side to keep score for each of the six rows. I called on the first student in row one to give the answer to the first homework question of the day. A right answer equaled a hit. And I drew a runner on first base. If the next student answered the next question correctly, I drew a second runner, one on first and one on second base. Enough right answers equaled a run. A wrong answer equaled an out. It took three outs before we moved on to the next row. The students got into the game answering their grammar questions. I had to close the door to the hall to keep the cheers and jeers 
from bothering the other classrooms. If we had studied the grammar of 1 Corinthians 11, we would have noted the following developments in the passage. Verses 4 through 6 are a unit that should be set off with quotation marks. Verse 7a is a thought by itself. Verse 7b is a different thought, followed by two verses that are subordinate to it and elaborate on it. Verse 8 is subordinate to 7. It is introduced by 4. Verse 9 is subordinate to 7 as well, introduced by 4 indeed. This structure is rare in the New Testament, but is used six times in 1 Corinthians. Pointing this out would be worth a home run. Verse 10 is introduced in Greek by therefore and is the culmination of this series of thoughts. The verb in verse 10, ought, is the same one used in verse 7, where a man ought not cover his head. Another home run observation. Before dismissing class, these would have been my parting summary thoughts. A Christian woman is as equally obligated and empowered as a Christian man to not cover her head when ministering in church. Because of the angels, the final Greek words of verse 10 point to the principle that shows why a Christian woman at Corinth has the authority to put into practice what she's learned from Paul. Verse 10, therefore a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. One of Paul's previous mentions of angels came in 1 Corinthians 6. There he refers to the noteworthy authority all Christians will have in the future to judge the angels. 6.1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare you take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before God's people? Do you not know that God's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? One day, Christian women, just like Christian men, will judge angels. A woman certainly can judge what is best and follow Paul's instructions on removing head coverings. No sign of shame should be draped over her head. Striking out A survey of Bible commentators reveals that most find themselves at a loss to explain what because of the angels means in verse 10. Some suggest it refers to angels, quote, looking on women and that a woman ought to put something on her head for their sake. These ideas have made their way into translations of verse 10. I will highlight some of their words. N-E-B, And therefore it is woman's duty to have a sign of authority on her head, out of regard for the angels. Phillips, For this reason, a woman ought to bear on her head an outward sign of man's authority for all the angels to see. R-S-V, that's why a woman ought to have a veil on her head, because of the angels. Jerusalem, that is the argument for women covering their heads, with a symbol of authority over them, out of respect for the angels. LB, so a woman should wear a covering on her head as a sign that she is under man's authority, a fact for all the angels to notice and rejoice in. NLB, for this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show she's under authority. Really? Based on what these translations say, some people theorize that verse 10 teaches something about hierarchical power structures within the family and church regarding the two genders. But properly understood, verse 10 says no such thing, and it doesn't add some strange doctrine about angels lurking around somewhere either. Basic Theology, verses 11 and 12. In 1 Corinthians 10.32, Paul indicates that he has three groups in mind. In chapter 11, he addresses each group, Jewish Christians, the church as a whole, non-Jewish Christians. 
In verses 11 and 12, he addresses the second group, the church as a whole, and gives the foundational theology on which his teachings are built. 11 and 12, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all come from God. In Greek, the nevertheless that starts verse 11 typically concludes the discussion while emphasizing what is essential. The for in verse 12 introduces a parallel thought to the concluding idea. In these verses, Paul teaches that neither the Christian man nor the Christian woman stands aloof on a different plane from the other. Together, they have the same point of reference for all things, God. Both are dependent on God. Verse 11 concludes with, in the Lord. Verse 12 ends with, all things are of God. What counts in church is God's point of view. At the beginning of creation, God was over all. Among women and men believers in the Lord, this is still His place. Appeal to Greek opinion in verses 13 to 15. Next comes the turn of the Christians in Corinth of non-Jewish origin. And pay attention, the Greek word order starts with a statement and not with a question in verse 13. Verse 13, you yourselves judge. It is proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. 14, not even nature itself teaches you that a man is dishonored by long hair, nor if a woman wears her hair long, it's her glory because long hair has been given to her instead of a covering. When Joy and I lived and ministered in Africa, we gained extensive experience among people who were non-Jewish. These Christians had no great appreciation for Christmas. They didn't celebrate it much. I discovered several reasons for this. In that part of Africa, many children died before the age of five. Some children grew up to be sinners and brought shame on their family. Only at a funeral could one rejoice over the good someone had actually done. Why celebrate a blank slate? When I explained the joyful prophecies that applied to the birth of Jesus, many began to see how one could rejoice over his birthday. We could all know that here was the birth of someone who should be celebrated. They also were puzzled by what their translations of 1 Corinthians 11:13 to 15 said. Long hair does not naturally fall down in long tresses for the women in that part of Africa. What were these verses saying to them? The African women agreed with what the non-Jewish women in Corinth made of the legalistic claims by the Judaizers. The claims didn't make sense to them. They weren't moved by them. This is the opinion Paul appeals to among the non-Jews in Corinth. In verses 13 to 15, Paul argues in the Greek text that nature does not support the proposals of verses 4 to 6. To the Jewish legalists, a Christian woman's uncovered head might have looked as bad as if it were shorn like a prostitute's. But was this the way the non-Jews saw these things? It was not. Paul appeals to nature to support his view. Such an appeal to nature would have had no weight with the Jewish Christians. It would have been shocking. But verses 13 to 15 are directed at the non-Jewish Christians in the church. Appealing to nature is meaningful for them. More reasons. In verse 13, Paul encourages the non-Jewish Corinthian Christians to judge this matter for themselves. In verses 14 to 15, he spells out the arguments so they can better make their decision. In the Greek text, these verses are straightforward affirmations made in declarative sentences. In most translations into English, however, these statements are, are turned into questions. The two senses are 180 degrees opposed to one another. For example, the Greek is declarative in verse 14, not, does not nature itself teach you, but nature itself does not teach you. 
When translating, first take a declarative sentence at face value and declare what it says. If the words make sense that way, there's no reason to take them in any other way. Do the sentences in verses 14 to 15 in Greek make sense as they stand? Yes. Not even nature itself teaches you that a man is dishonored by long hair. Or, if a woman wears her hair long, it is her glory because long hair has been given to her instead of a covering. Among the non-Jews at Corinth, there was a variety of ways for men and women to wear their hair. Nearby to Corinth was the coastal town mentioned in Homer's Odyssey, where he embarked with a number of brave, long-haired Achaeans. These men, these Corinthian heroes, wore long hair. Neither nature nor style suggested they do otherwise. Honest scholars admit what Walker observes in the Journal of Biblical Literature, Volume 94. These three verses, quote, actually imply rather strongly that women do not need any artificial head covering, close quote. Another way to test these verses is to see if the alternative way of translating them makes better sense. However, nothing but trouble arises when an attempt is made to turn these statements into questions. Alert. Having modified verse 10 to, quote-unquote, clarify its meanings, translators have modified these later verses as well. Here's a sample of several translations that make Paul's positive statements look like questions deserving negative answers. KJV, Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him? LB, What do you yourselves really think about this? Is it right for a woman to pray in public without covering her head? Does it even instinct itself teach us a man with long hair tends to be ashamed? NIV, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? No more arguing, please. Verse 16. Paul writes his conclusion to the matter in verse 16. But if anyone wants to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Paul concludes his dialogue with those who have made their legalistic proposal to Paul with the indication he knows that some of them will not be convinced. There will likely be individuals genuinely converted to Christ who will still want to pick a fight with others, or as Paul says, be contentious. Paul appeals to them on two more grounds. One, his personal example. Two, the example of other churches. At least the legalists at Corinth should admit that Paul has not taught them what they want him to adopt. Now they need to admit that he will not go along with them. The same will be true with the other churches. If the contentious ones in Corinth look at what the other churches are practicing, they will see that theirs is not the correct view. Conclusions In 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16 is an application of the principle that one does not have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. Jewish legalistic regulations were laid aside as having no relevance to Christians, non-Jews, and Jews alike. Prompted by the proposal from the Corinthians, embodied in the quotation in verses 4-6, to Paul affirms his previous teaching that both male and female believers should minister in church, praying and prophesying, leading in worship and preaching, without being limited by any of the restrictions of the oral law. In our day, Christians need to be mindful of Paul's battle to keep women fully involved in ministry. Few people today would refer to the Jewish oral law in an attempt to limit the freedom of women ministering in church. But, for their own reasons, many still try to draw a distinction between the service of Christian women and Christian men. If anyone wanted to be contentious about this, 
Paul had no such custom, nor did the early churches of God, nor should the churches of today. You've been listening to the Eden Podcast, and we invite you to visit our website at true316.com. That's tru316.com for links to our books, blog posts, and our YouTube channel with more than a dozen in-depth workshops on the seven key Bible passages on women and men from Eden on. You can also receive a study guide on this episode for use in small groups and more. Find that in our blog posts at our website or email bruce at true316.com to request the study guide. The Eden Podcast is brought to you by the True 316 Project. True316.com You can help move forward the True 316 Project. Please visit patreon.com. And thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. Thank you.